0: I had occasion to have sitting before me all the leaders of this present religious world, denominational leaders, respected theologians, church leaders, those who teach in seminaries and Bible colleges around the world. I had occasion to speak to right now. I would lay this charge at their feet. I lay it at the doorstep of the church of this generation. You frustrate the grace of God and make the cross of Jesus Christ to be of no effect. I know sometimes you may wonder why I appear angry with this age. why I uh, seem to be so stirred up and provoked. It's because I am. I am. I hold the religion of this age in utter contempt. I want the whole world to know it. Most especially, I want you to know it. When Paul sat down to write the book of Galatians, he was clearly provoked and angry. This book was intended, intended by Paul and intended by God the Holy Spirit who inspired the words we have before us in these six chapters. It was intended to be a deliberate, forceful confrontation. There's no wooing here. There's no uh, gentle persuading here. It's all confrontation. In the book of Galatians, unlike Paul's other writings, there are no friendly greetings, no gentle salutations, no kind, soothing reflections about things in the past. Everything in these six chapters is in-your-face confrontation. To say the least, Paul was a little hot under the collar. Why? What provoked him? What stirred up his anger? What was it that uh, caused this man to be so passionate as he wrote these six chapters? The Galatian churches, churches that God had raised up under Paul's ministry, were being led away from Christ, led away from the gospel, led away from God by false teachers who had sprung up in their midst. Now these men, professing to be the servants of God, were slandering the apostle Paul, accusing him of being a false prophet, denying the gospel of God's free and sovereign grace in Christ, all the while pretending to be promoting it and defending it. They were trying to make Christianity nothing but a mere extension of Judaism, just like most people our day do. And our day, both in the political world and in the religious world, you hear folks talk about the Judeo-Christian religion. There ain't no such thing. If it's Jewish, it's not Christian. If it's Christian, it's not Jewish. The Galatians were attempting to make Christianity nothing but an extension of Judaism, and the vast majority of people today do as well, conservative and liberal. Uh, They did not openly deny that salvation is by the grace of God in Christ. Uh, These false prophets did not openly state that Christ is not enough. Christ is not sufficient. Or even that works must be mixed with faith if you're really going to be saved. The messengers of Satan are too crafty and subtle to be so open and so forthright. God's servants, all of God's servants, tell you exactly what they mean. False prophets will always couch their words in such a way that you can put any meaning you want to on them. They didn't just openly say that Christ is not enough, that grace is not enough, that you must... Mix faith with your, or mix works with your faith in order to be saved. They were teaching that salvation is by grace through works, but they didn't state it quite that way. These Galatian heretics taught that true faith is a faith that expresses itself in the observance of Mosaic law. That sounds a whole lot better, doesn't it? True faith is a faith that. Uh, expresses itself in the observance of the law. And any faith that does not express itself in obedience to the law is false faith and must be suspect. these men and their heresy were being embraced by the Galatian churches and Paul was shocked, abhorred, angry. How could they be confused about this? If salvation is by grace, it cannot be by works. If it is by works, it cannot be by grace. There can be no mixing of the two. The issue at Galatia, unlike the issues that were so horrible at Corinth, and they were horrible, those issues, however, did not threaten the gospel. They did not threaten the glory of God. They did not threaten the souls of men. These issues at Galatia were gospel issues. They threatened the glory of God. Paul never said to the Corinthians, I'm in doubt of you, I'm fearful for you, lest I have bestowed labor on you in vain. He did the Galatians. With the Galatians, the error here threatened the truth of the gospel, the glory of God, the finished work of Christ, and the souls of men. And therefore Paul jumped in, and one fellow put it with both this fly. <laughs> he just he jumped right into the conflict and stirred things up. He had good reason to be provoked. His anger was justified. Now let me give you two key verses. We'll come back and look at them more later. Galatians 2.21. These two verses summarize the things that are at stake in Galatia and the things that are at stake in our day. Galatians 2.21. I do not frustrate the grace of God. But what does that mean? If righteousness come by the law, what kind of righteousness? Any kind at all before God if righteousness come by the law, then Christ died for nothing. Christ is dead in vain. That's just about as strong a phraseology as he could have used. Look at chapter 6, verse 14. But God forbid that I should glory, boast, lean on, trust in, proclaim, dragged about. God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. Now let's go back to chapter 1 and see the problems at Galatia and Paul's solution for those problems. It is ever the practice of those who oppose the gospel of God's free grace to slander the men who preach it. These legalists at Galatia could not refute Paul's doctrine from Scripture. You cannot refute free grace from this book. <laughs> it can't be done. It can't be done. But uh, if you're going to get folks on your side when you oppose that which is evidently true, the only way to do it is to slander the fellow who is preaching. It. And so these legalists at Galatia took it upon themselves to accuse Paul of being an insincere man a man pleaser, one who sought to please his hearers, not a true servant of God, a false apostle, one who had really no authority, no credentials with which to speak to them as God's messengers. If they were to turn people from Paul's message, they had to discredit Paul, and so they did. It is for this reason that the opening verses of this first chapter identify Paul decisively as the apostle of Christ, not an apostle of men, Not an apostle by men, but an apostle of Jesus Christ and an apostle by the will of God. He is an apostle who comes to please Christ and to preach Christ, and God made him that apostle. Now Paul, with this authority, denounces every rival gospel as a false gospel. He tells us plainly in verses 6 through 9 that every gospel, every gospel, listen carefully, Every gospel that teaches the sinner to look for righteousness and salvation anywhere except in Christ alone is no gospel at all. But rather is a frustration of the grace of God. And with regard to those who preach another gospel, Paul said this, not Don, Paul. I'm just repeating what Paul said. I wish I had thought to say it first. Paul said it. Let him be forever damned. Let him be accursed. Oh, that's not very sweet. It is to the souls of men. That's not very nice. It is, if you're going to be honest with folks. Let him be accursed. Now look at verses 6 through 9. I marvel. I'm astonished that you're so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another Not even similar. But there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we are an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. Let him be forever damned. Well, how far do you carry that, Paul? Are you you speaking in hyperbole here? Let's see. Verse 9. As we said before, so say I now again, just in case you didn't get it the first time. If any man preach any other gospel unto you than that you have received, let him be accursed. The gospel of God's grace, the gospel of God's grace says done, not do. Now get it, it's just that simple. All false gospels say do. The gospel of God's grace says done. You see, the gospel is good news about something already done. It is good news about the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ, who by his one sacrifice for sin at one time made an end of transgression, brought in everlasting righteousness, fulfilled all the law, satisfied all the justice of God, put away sin, and obtained eternal redemption for us. The gospel is the announcement of something done by Christ Jesus the Lord. Every false gospel is given as good advice and tells you something you ought to do. Every false gospel comes and says, this is how you ought to respond, and now if you will respond this way, then this is what God will do. The gospel says done. Every false gospel says do. And every false gospel and those who preach it is Heresy, utter heresy. Those who preach it and those who follow them, follow them to hell. Now that's how serious the issues were at Galatians. And that's how serious the issues are right now. So far from uh, Paul being a compromising man pleaser, when Peter compromised the gospel by his actions at Antioch in chapter 2, Paul describes this verses 11 through 17. Uh, Paul put him to the base. Now let me uh, summarize what happened at Antioch. I'll put it in uh, good Kentucky vernacular you can get. Uh, the fellows at Antioch, the Gentile believers, were having a pig picking. And uh, Peter was sitting around enjoying some good barbecued ribs. And just having a good time. Enjoying himself when suddenly he looked up, and here come some of the Jewish brethren from Jerusalem. And this is what Peter did. He just got up, walked away. If he had some benacca, he just the president of a barbecue on his bread. That's all he did. He didn't say a word. He didn't say a word. He just got up and walked away. Oh, but his actions thundered loudly. I shouldn't have done that. Moses forbids the eat the pig meat. And these Jews, they presume that this has got something to do with righteousness, and by his actions, Peter says it does. He knew better. He knew better. He learned it in Acts chapter 10 and 11. He tells us he knew better. But Peter was anxious to please the Jewish brethren, and Paul said, As he did this, I withstood him to the face right in front of the Jews and right in front of the Gentiles, because everybody had to hear it. He caused such a great dissimulation, such a a great turning from the gospel, a great turning from Christ, that even Barnabas, Paul says, was led away by his dissimulation. By mere action, Peter led others to believe that righteousness, justification, salvation, And acceptance with God is not totally of God's work, not totally of God's grace. But in some way, in some way there just might be, in some way there just might be a sense in which salvation and righteousness and eternal life really does depend on something we do. Now you wonder, perhaps, why I'm so fastidious fastidious about this business of having nothing to do with false religion. If you see me go down the road and go across the street and sit in that brothel they call the church house over there, if you see it, and I said it on purpose, and they do what they want to do. If you see me go over there for any reason and sit down and listen to what the man has to say, if you see me do it by my actions, I'm saying to you, maybe, maybe free will is right. Maybe, maybe after all, some of this things called salvation and grace. Depends on what we do. Now, you still want to take your children to Bible school over there? <laughs> you still want to take your children to join up with the uh, association with these things? You want to take them by the hand and lead them to hell? That's what Peter did here at Antioch. And Paul declares it to be nothing but a frustration of the grace of God. He implied doctrinally by his actions. He implied doctrinally by his actions that the grace of God was altogether frustrated. He implied that justifying righteousness can, after all, be obtained by the works of men, and therefore Paul withstood him to the face. Let's read it, verse 14, chapter 2. When I saw that they walked not uprightly according to the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, if thou being a Jew, livest after the manner of the Gentiles, and not as do the Jews, why compellest thou the Gentiles to live as do the Jews? You were sitting right here five minutes ago eating barbecue. You were sitting right here with these fellows having yourself pig roasted. Now you get up and act as though that was wrong. How are you going to compel these Gentiles to live like the Jews when you don't live like that yourself? Look at verse fifteen. We were Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is justified by the works of the law. A man is not justified by the works of the law. Paul said, Peter, you know this. You know this. You testified to this. I've heard it. We know that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. Not our faith in Christ, but by the faith of Christ. By Christ's faithful obedience unto death is our substitute. Even we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law there shall no flesh be justified. We are justified by the faith of Christ. By our faith in Christ we receive and enjoy the blessedness of justification. We come to know that justification as we believe on the Son of God. But our faith in Christ is not that which gives us right standing with God. It is Christ's obedience that gives us right standing with God. Paul then declares, if we are justified by grace alone, by the faith of Jesus Christ, to suggest or imply in any way that our works has anything at all to do with making us righteous before God for justification, is to deny the gospel altogether. He says, I do not frustrate the grace of God. For if righteousness come by the law, then Christ died for nothing. If righteousness could be established by something men do, there was no need for Christ to die. That's what he says. (laughs) If righteousness could be established by something men do, there was no need for Christ to die. It couldn't have used stronger language. Salvation by grace alone In Christ alone, received by faith alone, without works of any kind. That's the doctrine of the Holy Scripture. Now, Paul understood exactly. He understood exactly uh, what the response of his detractors would be. He he could almost hear them screaming with clenched fists, Antinomianism. That's antinomianism. Paul, if you teach that, then you're saying that we can go out and live like we want to. We're saved like without any of our works, and it doesn't matter what we do, we can't add anything to our righteousness, but well, we can live like we want to. Oh. How do you know that's what they're saying? Because in verse 17, Paul says it. what it said. Look at it. If while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves be found sinners. Is therefore Christ the minister of sin? God forbid. Pardon. If justification, if righteousness is altogether something done for us, not something done by us in any way at all, then our works contribute nothing to that. That means that uh, it doesn't matter how we live. You see, the legalist always betrays his true character by his words. He always does. I know that's what they were saying. Because Paul tells us that verse 17, and I know it because I've heard it countless times in every country I've ever been in, wherever I preach the gospel. Folks say to me, well, if I believe that, I'd go out and live like I want to. The legalist, you see, really hates his religion. He doesn't want to live in bondage. No, he doesn't want to to do things he does. He does it because he's scared to death not to. I got to live like I want to. The believer is motivated by grace. And he seeks to serve God because he wants to serve God. Because he's inspired of God to serve him. The fact is, any man who preaches salvation by grace alone, without works, will then surely be accused of antinomianism. Folks will say, well, he promotes licentiousness. He says, let us sin that grace may abound. But the charge is as baseless as it is false. Then in chapter 3, Paul moves on to sanctification. He's been talking about justification exclusively. Now, it's hard to tell as you go through the rest of this book whether he's talking talking about justification or sanctification. Is Paul confusing the two? No, he's not confusing them. Other folks do. He's not confusing them. He knew exactly what he was talking about. He argues with the Galatians and with us that their experience and ours, the experience of grace, forbids the notion that righteousness is somehow obtained by our works or by our obedience. Look in chapter 3, verse, three, verse 1. Oh, foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you? Who's cast a spell on you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ has been evidently set forth? He's been set forth clearly on you. Verse 2, this only would I learn of you. Receive ye the Spirit by the works of the law, or by the hearing of faith. When God first saved you, when you first experienced His grace, was it because of something you did? Or was it by believing Christ? Which was it? Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit? Are you now made perfect by the flesh? You see, sanctification as well as justification are by grace alone once we have received righteousness from christ in justification by believing Him, we do not make ourselves more holy are more righteous before god by our works in sanctification sanctification and justification are two different things sanctification is that which we experience as it's used in this place though certainly it is used with regard to christ's accomplishments of calvary as well as god's purpose in eternity but what paul's talking about here is our experience of grace he's talking about us Coming to know the Lord God, being born of God's Spirit, the two are separate works, but they cannot be divided. Both are works of free grace. Salvation in its totality is by the grace of God. Very often people, folks argue, us about the thing of sanctification and want to debate with it. And I'm getting too old to debate and fuss folks much. I used cut the chase real quick. And uh, what I'll say to them is this. Is it necessary for a fellow to be sanctified to get to heaven? Well, yes. Well, it's either of works or of grace. Now, which is going to be? (laughs) You can't mix the two. Oh, well, I I didn't mean it that way. That's the way I meant it. (laughs) Yes, it's necessary. We must be sanctified by the grace of God as well as justified by the grace of God. And both are God's work alone, they cannot be separated. You see, Christ is both our justification and our sanctification. Well, is that in the book? It sure is. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30. Of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God has made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Well, what does that mean? I think it means Christ is our wisdom, our righteousness, our sanctification, and our redemption. Well, preach, that's awful simple. It is. It's a simple, folks who are too smart to believe it won't, won't believe it. You see, his name is Jehovah Echidre, the Lord our righteousness. And we have no righteousness before God but him. None but him. To suggest that we make ourselves righteous by our works and sanctification is to mix grace and works. And that is a frustration of the grace of God. I do not frustrate the grace of God. For if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. As I've said to you many times, our relationship with God does in many ways determine what we do. But what we do does not to any degree determine our relationship with God. Now, in chapter 4, beginning in chapter 3, verse 19, and going to the end of chapter 4, Paul is stating his doctrine clearly. Any mixture of grace and works in the matter of righteousness is a total denial of grace. It's a frustration of grace. Therefore, beginning in verse 19 of chapter three, he tells us that the whole purpose of God's law was fulfilled, completely fulfilled, at an end when Jesus Christ suffered and died and rose again as our substitute. The law was our schoolmaster unto Christ. Not our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, our schoolmaster unto Christ. The law was our schoolmaster to Christ coming. And once Christ came and fulfilled it, the law's work was finished. Christ is the E N D. It spelled that end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. There's simply no place, no place for legal bondage in the household of faith. Those who would bring God's saints under the yoke of the law deny the whole gospel of the grace of God and every believer's experience of grace. They who attempt to make themselves righteous by the works of the law are still under the curse, under the curse of God's law. Look at chapter 3, verse 10. As many as are of the works of the law are under the curse, for it is written Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. But that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident, for the just shall live by faith. Now, in these two chapters, 3 and 4, Paul tells us that these who are promoters of law deny the experience of grace. We saw that in the first part of chapter 3. In verses 6, 7, 8, and 9, he says they denied the Old Testament scriptures, which assert that Abraham was justified by faith without any works of any kind. They denied the efficacy of Christ's atonement, asserting that Christ died in vain, and they didn't actually secure the blessing of God's grace for anyone by his death, as is recorded in Galatians 3 13 and 14. They denied the whole purpose of the law as a schoolmaster unto Christ. Oh no, the law was a schoolmaster unto Christ. The Lord is a rigid rule by which men live and sought acceptance with God in the Old Testament. And the Lord now is the same rigid rule by which men trust in Jesus, live and seek righteousness before God. And that's exactly the emphasis. That's exactly the emphasis. They deny the blessed liberty of the gospel of God's free grace, the liberty Christ obtained for us by his obedience to death, by his sacrifice as our substitute. They deny that all that Christ did was of any value, for they attempt to bring us back under the yoke of the law. Look at chapter 4, verse 4. When the fullness of time was come, the time appointed that faith should come, that Christ should come, God sent forth his Son made of a woman made under the law to redeem them that were under the law that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because you are sons, not in order that you might become sons, because you are sons, God chose you from eternity. God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Wherefore, thou art no more a servant, but a son. You're no longer under the schoolmaster, but a son. You're no longer under the tutelage of a schoolmaster, or the rule of a schoolmaster, or the discipline of a schoolmaster, or the motivation of a schoolmaster. You're a son, an heir of all an heir of God through Christ. No wonder Paul was so fearful for their souls. No wonder he said, I stand in doubt of you. These Gentile believers, now listen to me. People talk today about the law and the universal effect and all that stuff. Listen to me. Where in this book, where? I'm not talking about in religious tradition, history, or custom. Where in this book Is there ever one Gentile to whom the law was given (laughs) These Gentiles never had the law given to them. It was given to Israel and Israel alone on Mount Sinai. It wasn't intended for anybody else. It was intended to bring us to Christ as being a picture of Christ. It was intended to be that which would last until Christ came as our teacher, our guide. But these Gentiles, who never had the law given to them, now under the influence of false teachers were attempting to bring themselves under the yoke of bondage, forsaking the liberty of grace. Galatians 4, verse 9. But now, after that you have known God, or rather are known of God, how turn you again, now look how he speaks of the law, to the weak and beggarly elements. Where you desire again to be in bondage. You Gentiles, God never gave you a Sabbath day. He never gave you a new moon. You worship stocks and stones, but, but you were never under law. But now, you observe days and months and times and years. <laughs> <laughs> I'm afraid of you. I'm afraid for you. Lest I have bestowed upon you labor in vain. Then in the latter part of the chapter, verses 21 through 31, Paul takes Sarah and Hagar. You'll remember them. Sarah and Hagar, her handmaid. Abraham's wife and Hagar, her handmaid. And their two sons, Isaac and Ishmael. Now you remember what Ishmael was? God made a promise to Abraham, a promise of redemption, grace, and salvation through that seed of woman who would come from his loins in whom all the nations of the earth would be blessed. He promised him salvation by Christ. And uh, after a little while, Sarah got to looking a lot older. And Sarah was convinced she wasn't ever going to have any children. And she said, i tell you what, buddy. Tonight, why don't you take my handmaiden, go in and sleep with her. And that's the way God's going to fulfill his promise. And Abraham, by his works of righteousness. Listen to me. By attempting... To bring about God's righteous promise through the energy of the flesh, God Ishmael. <laughs> That's exactly the allegory Paul uses. And he says, Now the time came when God said, Take Hagar the bondwoman, and Ishmael the son of the bondwoman, and cast them out. And he says, These things are an allegory. There's no room in the house of grace works they cannot dwell together, They cannot exist together. There's no room for law anywhere, no room for Sabbath keeping, no room for law of service, no room for circumcision, no room for new moons. no room for holy days, no room in the house of grace for the works of the law, none whatever. Then in chapter 5, Paul urges us to stand fast in the blessed liberty of the gospel, And he urges us with a strong warning. If we do anything, anything, by which we attempt to gain God's favor, improve our standing in God's favor, or keep ourselves in God's favor, if we do anything by which to give ourselves righteousness, make ourselves righteous or make ourselves more righteous, if we do anything, then we have forsaken the gospel of the grace of God altogether, and we have forsaken Christ altogether, and Christ is of no value to our souls. Let's see if that's what it says. Verse 1. Stand fast, therefore, plant your feet in cement in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. I could spend a long time on that.
1: <laughs> oh, how
0: entangling legalism is. You know, when I was, I recall before, God saved me. I was sitting in a Sunday school class. The short after God saved me, sitting in a Sunday school class. Teenage boys. boys he it teach. And I had two teachers. And the two teachers were talking about tithing. And you know, they just all got to be in real unpleasant. And these kind of were good friends about whether you ought to on the gross of the net. I <laughs> spent a whole hour and the next Sunday school hour as well, the next week, arguing about tithe on the gross of the net. Well, I was entangled, entangled with the yoke of bondage. Look at verse 2. Behold, I fall, saying to you, that if you be circumcised. Is there anybody here has got an appointment in the morning to go get circumcised? Well, no, preaching. I knew one or two fellows who did that, but that'd be my age, but I don't know many. Well, what's he talking about there? If you do anything to make yourself clean before God, I don't care whether it's reciting prayers, memorizing scripture, reading your Bible, giving you money, attending the church, if you do anything to make yourself clean before God, watch it Christ shall profit you nothing. For I testify again to every man that is circumcised. That he's a debtor to the whole law. You've got to live it perfectly. Christ has become of no effect unto you. Whosoever of you are justified by the law, you've fallen from grace. You've missed the whole thing. There's no antinomianism here. No licentiousness. No encouragement to sin. Far from it. The rest of the book of Galatians is a declaration that this liberty of grace is life in the spirit. As we walk in the Spirit, looking to Christ alone for righteousness, salvation, and acceptance with God, as we walk in the Spirit, trusting Jesus Christ alone, living by faith, we will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. It is self-righteousness, legalism, that causes many women to fight and devour one another. And they do it in the name of Righteousness. <laughs> the meanest people I've ever met in my life, the meanest people I've ever had to do business with, were religious folks. Religious folks. Right? Oh, I can devour. Believers have been taught by the grace of God. And the grace of God that brings salvation is taught us in things. It teaches believers when his brother's fallen to restore him in the spirit of meekness because he knows he's just exactly like him. It teaches the believer to bear his brother's burden and so fulfill the law of Christ. It teaches the believer to sow unto righteousness, unto spiritual life, and not unto the flesh, and thereby reaping life everlasting. Galatians 3, verse 14. The law of God, I'm sorry, chapter 6, verse 14. The law of God is not our rule of life. It is not our hope. The law of God brings nothing but death and condemnation. Our only hope is the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our only motive, our only rule of life is the cross. All who have this hope and live by this rule are the Israel of God. Now, the sum and substance of all true Christianity the sum and substance of all true doctrine, the sum and substance of everything written in this book can be given to you in one word, cross. The cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Throughout this book, the cross of Christ is central. Paul says in verse 14, God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world now when Paul uses the word cross I know for you I don't have to pause and say this Uh, for everybody else who gets this tape I've got my (laughs) suspicions he's not talking about the wooden cross on which Christ died if I could get it I'd burn it and I wouldn't tell you where I threw the ashes because people make a piece of idolatry and worship it you're sure you wouldn't do that oh yes I would if God gave me any wisdom or sense at all, I would. He wasn't talking about the symbol of the cross. People have an idolatrous, papal superstition with regard to this nonsense. of wearing a cross. Just a piece of idolatry. He's, I remember I those vampire movies. If you want to take care of the devil and vampires, you get your big cross and you hold it up there. And that'll scare him off. That's not what he's talking about. That's just idolatry. If you've got any crosses, burn them. Throw them away. Melt them down, make your ring out of them. Melt them down and sell the gold, go buy lunch. It's just idolatry. What's he talking about? He's not even talking about the historic fact that Christ died on the cross. That never saved anybody. Never saved anybody. What's he talking about? He's talking about the doctrine of the cross. He's talking about redemption accomplished by the crucified substitute who now sits in glory, our Lord Jesus Christ. Now go back to chapter 1. Let me show you how Paul uses the cross throughout these six chapters. In verses 3, 4, and 5, he tells us that the cross is our deliverance by blood of God. Christ gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil world. In chapter 2, verses 19, 20, he tells us the cross is our life. Now watch this. Verse 19. I, through the law, am dead to the law. The law killed me. In the person of my substitute, I'm dead to the law. Now watch this, that I might live unto God. Verse 20, I am crucified with Christ. Let me give you a very literal translation. I have been once and for all with finality crucified with Christ. He's saying the same thing in verse twenty. He said it verse twenty, he said in verse nineteen. Through the law, I'm dead to the law. When Christ died, I died. Nevertheless, I live. Now I'm alive. Christ rose up from the dead, and I did too. Yet not I. It's not me, the Christ that liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh. Watch this. I live by the faith of the Son of God. I live by the obedience of Christ, my substitute, who loved me and gave himself for me. Verse 21. The cross is righteousness. If righteousness comes by the law, Christ is dead in vain. Oh, no. Righteousness comes by Christ. Chapter 3, verse 13. The cross is the removal of our curse. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Verse 14. The cross is the certainty of God's blessing, that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles. Verse 22. The cross is the center of faith. The scripture had concluded all of the sins, that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe, by the faithful obedience of Christ unto death. Chapter 4, we already read it, verses 4 through 7, the cross is the ground of our adoption. The Lord Jesus Christ died for us that we might receive the adoption of some. Chapter 5, verse 11, the cross is an offense. Paul says, I, brethren, if I yet preach circumcision, why do I yet suffer persecution?" Then is the offense of the cross ceased. The cross offends man's wisdom. It's too simple. It offends man's self-righteousness, for it declares that he has none. The cross defends man's love of dignity, his sense of self-worth and importance, because it makes him on the same ground as every other sinner. On the way you can come home to God, is by faith in Christ, the crucified redeemer. Verse 22, 23 and 24. The cross is the source of all grace. This is the thing of walking in the Spirit. It's believing Christ. And the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, faith, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. And they, their Christ, have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts thereof. In verse, chapter 6, verses 14 to 15, and Paul tells us that the cross is that by which we are crucified to the world and the world unto us. Let me move on. Verse 16, chapter 6. The cross is our rule, our peace, our mercy, and our life. As many as walk according to this rule, I must needs go home by the way of the cross. There's no other way but this. This is the rule by which we live. How do you teach folks to give? Look at Christ. Give like he did. How do you teach folks to love? Look at Christ. Love like he did. How do you teach folks to live? Look at Christ. Live like he did. As many as walk according to this rule, peace be on them me, and mercy and upon the Israel of God. From henceforth let no man trouble me. I'm I've washed my hands with these fellows. You, you slander and jack all you want to. I just flat don't give a flip what you say. For I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. Brethren, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. God help us to glory in the cross. Now let me wrap this up. I turn to Philippians chapter 3. Won't you see this? Paul urges us to beware of dogs, evil workers, the concession, these promoters of self-righteousness, legal obedience. And he says in verse 3, we are the circumcision. We are those who are saved by God's grace. We are the Israel of God, which worship God in the spirit. We don't need crosses, icons. Jude, the Lord will graciously allow me to communicate just a little of what he has given me from these 25 verses, and you will be blessed of God. Jude was the half-brother of our Lord Jesus, one of his half-brothers, the full brother of James. He lived longer than any of the apostles except the apostle John. That this epistle was written not any later than 30 or 35 years after our Lord ascended back to glory. Jude and John lived long enough to see those things come to pass, which our Lord Jesus had prophesied, and the apostles Peter and Paul had distinctly prophesied concerning apostasy and heresies that must come. And we ought to count it a great mercy of our God in his wise providence that Jude and John lived to see these things come to pass. For if they had not seen them come to pass, we would never have had these epistles from their pen which give us so much consolation and so much instruction with regard to heresy and apostasy in the church. By the time Jude writes this epistle, just 30 or 35 years after the Lord Jesus ascended back to glory, after he accomplished redemption for us by the shedding of his blood, after he had warned his disciples to beware of false Christ who would appear everywhere, just a short while after Paul had warned the saints to beware of those who would rise up from their midst as wolves in sheep's clothing, just Just a few short years after Peter warned of those who would come denying the Lord Jesus Christ, yet professing to be his, Jude takes his pen and writes this epistle. Let's begin by reading the first four verses. Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ, and brother of James, to them that are sanctified by God the Father, and preserved in jesus christ and call mercy unto you and peace and love be multiplied the love when i gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation now this is lucky land casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky lucky in line at the deli i guess aha uh-huh, in my dentist's office